Hi, I'm Druthi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and what makes them tick. The podcast is for those who are reckoning and tired of being told you can just have this one focus, only one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Erica Berry, author of Wolfish, Wolf, Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. Now, Erica, you and I have been talking for quite a while because it turns out we both have this fascination with wolves. We've come at it from different perspectives, but you have this most wonderful debut book out and it's called Wolfish, Wolf, Self and the Stories We Tell About Fear. Now, I can wax lyrical about it, but what I would love to know and get you thinking about is how did you come to create a memoir that put wolves at the centre? But before we do, I'm just going to say for the audience here, clearly we've got some pathetic fallacy going on because the weather has changed when we're recording. So you might hear some lightning, some thunder. It's not my sound effect. We're just going to pay homage to Mother Nature, which could be useful in terms of the conversation we're about to have. I love that. As a backdrop, I was fascinated by wolves. I was studying them for an environmental studies thesis and got family that are taxidermists and hunters. And I was sort of engaging with how they were seeing nature, which was a bit different than my family who are hikers and farmers. I really felt like personally, I was seeing a sort of engagement with animals and nature. Well, it didn't fit into a box in the sort of media headlines way, at least in the States, there's this big sort of like urban versus rural. And for me, it was just like, this is this uncle, he's doing this, he's doing that. It was a bit more jumbled. I was interested in what wolves were showing about how they became a sort of bellwether of how humans engage with nature more broadly. And then it's like a bit like the thunder just arriving. There were these other themes that were sort of crashing into my life at that moment, which were essentially these feelings of fear and anxiety, sort of meditations on predator prey that I was thinking about as a young woman where I would go out to do reporting. And I really wanted to just write this sort of like serious wolf book where I would go talk to a rancher and talk to an environmentalist and you know, there was an experience where I got yelled at in a bar by a man who sort of mimed shooting up the place when he heard I was working on wolves. And to me, his presence was, I mean, he sort of, he called me darling, leaned in really close and was like, this is what we do with the wolves. We shoot them. And that was threatening to me as well. Right. And I think there was another experience where I was trying to go do a research trip and go just write and read in my little ha- cabin. I was very excited. And somebody on the train started writing me these sort of threatening letters and showing them to me. And there were all these moments where the story I was wanting to tell, which was about real wolves. Instead, I kept kind of thinking of these symbolic wolves that I'd heard about my whole life that I was resistant to looking at. And people would say things culturally like, oh, you're going to a cabin in the woods. Hope you don't get murdered. Ha ha ha. I was like, why is that the story of the young woman who goes to the cabin in the woods? And so I began to feel like the stories of the symbolic wolf I'd inherited through sort of like what you're most prototypical Western folkloric representations were kind of haunting the inquiries into science and culture and like this other thing. I think it was recognizing that the big questions I was trying to figure out in my life, which was how do I live beside this fear and besides danger and beside violence, those are questions that any person is maybe encountering, especially as we get older, we're sort of learning what's in our control. We're not being taken care of by other people as much. We're living independently. And at the same time, I'm asking, how do people live beside real wolves? What does it look like to share the landscape with this creature? And because in so many, you know, stories and folkloric idioms and stories from all over the world, wolves are often representative of like threat or danger or cunning and like parents telling these little stories like, here's how to stay alive, here's how to stay wise. There's the wolf plays a role in those. And I started sort of feeling like my coming of age journey into how to live beside my own fears and beside mortality, besides coexisting with other 
people, other species, was actually like quite tied to this real life question of what does it look like to share the landscape with wolves, where wolves might be coming back in, say, the American West, where me and my family lives. But you didn't just look at the American West. I mean, you literally are traveling across places. You bring in multiple languages across multiple cultures in order to highlight. And that's something that isn't always done, actually. You know, there are phrases I'm like, oh, I didn't know this. And I'm going to take that and, and use that at some point. Why was it so important for you to incorporate that and bring in these different lenses? I think a lot about the idea that I've caught this wolf by osmosis was how I thought about it. Like when I say wolf, and sometimes I've done this at a reading, I'll be looking out at a crowd of people and I'll say, quick, if I say the word wolf, what's the first thing that comes to mind, right? When I start and I'll point at people in the crowd and they all say different things, right? Because I think when it's this kind of postage stamp, you know, we've all been pressed upon by all these different associations. Oh, this is what so-and-so's mother talked about. This is the cartoon I saw. And so the sort of shadow wolf, I call it in the book, the cultural taxidermy of the wolf is another sort of term I use, where there's this real biological wolf, but then there is this cultural taxidermy, and that is really shaped cross cultures. And so at the same time, while I want to say, at a certain age, I grew up, and I thought only of the Little Red Riding Hood wolf, perhaps, <laughs> there is a much wider, across time and space and history, sort of versions of the wolf. There's indigenous stories about the wolf that are in the same region of Oregon, where I am, where our first laws were passed about exterminating wolves, but that's not the story of wolves on the land. The story of wolves on the land is like the Kalapuya origin story, which was about a wolf taking care of a mother's young. And so sort of trying to understand these layers, I'm so interested in stories and the ways that they sort of echo around and really inform the way we move through the world. I, I don't think stories are just existing on some other sort of ethereal plane. I think stories come from reality and then they also shape reality. And you can see in early fairy tales and folk tales, like those are responding to real life threats and they're also shaping then the way people are moving through the world. So it was really interesting to sort of say, okay, the story that the wolf is the predatory threat, say who preys on young shepherd women, that's a version that is sold to us through a certain sort of French aristocracy <laughs> story, but that's not inherently true potentially, that's a narrative. And so I felt like with this book, I really wanted to like peel back the threads of these different narratives and try to say like, why has the wolf been depicted in this way? And in a way that led to finding this much more expansive, exhilarating, sort of like beautiful stories about the wolf that are so often sort of overshadowed by three little pigs and the wolf who blew it all down. But the other thing that's really important with it, like you are bringing in a lot of personal stuff. It is a memoir as well as that sort of narrative nonfiction, as well as sort of following the journey of the wolf, as well as the literature. It's a lot of genres that it's crossing. How did you make yourself feel comfortable with approaching pieces of fear that maybe often people are like, mm -hmm. oh, that happened, you know, I was walking and there was a huge group of guys. I don't want to think about mm -hmm. that again. But you seem to have deliberately gone back to, to deconstruct and figure that out. But how did you make sure that you're able to do it without, I guess, traumatizing yourself or, you know, getting stuck in that moment? Thank you for asking that so considerately. I had a therapist at a time who said, you're you're going through this period of intense anxiety. I would say after some of these sort of salt on the sidewalk, some of these moments, I was having trouble moving through the world the way that I'd done. I was really like entering the house and wanting to check all the closets and under the bed, you know, when I first got there. And I could sort of recognize that I didn't want this to be the way I moved through the world. And I think very often when we have fears, we sort of think like, I've got to grow out of it. 
like the self-help book is like grow out of your fears and I, at a certain point it occurred to me like what if i figured out how i grew into this like let's actually go back to the root and you know you sort of think about planting like let's go go back and think about how the seeds got in the earth not just how we dig them out right and so at that time i was telling a therapist i'm, I'm writing about these fears that have become quite debilitating and I, I know a bit irrational and she was like i don't think that's a good idea i think you're dwelling in it you know there's psychological research that says that writing about trauma can be very revelatory and sort of cathartic and i didn't set out to write this book because i thought it would solve me but in a certain way taking a sort of narrative control over them. And also I think one of the things that has surprised some readers is that say there's this moment where I do encounter say the man on the train who I mentioned, who's quite threatening and yet I'm I'm polite to him and I'm, I feel empathy towards him and I, I sort of worry about him and who's taking care of him because I know he's vulnerable. And I wanted to let myself feel that and put that on the page. It was really important to right into these moments in a way that maybe I hadn't always read where it's sort of like threatened girl and predatory man. And I just felt like sometimes those lines are a bit more gray and there's a bit, both of those things were existing simultaneously for me. And I think about it as sort of these, like a couple of instincts that I'd really learned in growing up. The way I'd been taught to be a young woman was both a sort of like taking care of other people and sort of making sure they're okay. And also the sort of self-protective instinct and sometimes those were at odds. I, I felt like I would want to take care of this person even as they were potentially encro encroaching on my personal space. And that sounds a bit crazy to say, but I think letting myself right into that conflicted feeling, you know, I, there were times where I couldn't grab the pepper spray, even though I thought, grab the pepper spray, this is what you do. And I couldn't, like my body had frozen. And I always felt like the reason I'm talking about these stories, it's a form of lived authority in the same way that me calling a researcher who studies animal responses to say an elk that nearly escapes from a wolf how does that affect the way the elk moves through the forest i was interested in those questions but i think it was my agent who sort of said like your own experiences are a form of lived authority with fear as well and like maybe you can like look to those in the way that you'd look to evidence in a paper and i felt like i'm going to be vulnerable on the page so that maybe the reader can be vulnerable too and i don't presume that readers have had the same experience in some of these encounters and yet in being quite granular and filtering through really intimately what was going on in my brain and why that was going on in my brain and sort of the various narratives i'm hoping that readers are sort of able to maybe look at their own fears and where they came from and how they were sold to them. You know, fear is, it's sold to us and it's benefiting someone and it's harming someone. I think one of my main takeaways is that I want people to be quite aware of like the cultural narratives. I think fear so often gets talked about as it's this like really ingrained biological response. Like it's this very primitive kind of feeling. And actually it's so often a taught sort of feeling. The, the subtitle in the UK is fear, ferocity, and freedom. I think all of those things are, there's a maybe a level that's kind of primitive impulsively in our DNA, we have a sort of response to something, but also we're taught that and we're taught that through stories. And a lot of those stories are harmful and rooted in racism, colonialism, misogyny, all of these things. And so if we don't acknowledge that we're selling ourselves short. How have you managed to tally Erica, the author with Erica, the person who has had those experiences? I've been a bit in denial, to be honest, in that I've been having to protect myself from thinking about it in some way. Like, I just am still getting up every day and being like, what am I going to write in my journal? What are the next ideas I'm thinking about? I very much write the questions that I need to answer in my own life. So right now I'm thinking about love. I'm reading a novel, Palestinian novel about love right now. Like, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't let myself get too distracted by what has changed. <laughs> 
in that way. I met with a book club recently that were all women. We spanned five decades. The oldest one was in her 80s. And they were all talking about how when they started reading it, they felt some of them were saying this, you know, oh, Erica, you're just more anxious than I am. I'm not thinking about this. I'm trying to figure out my distance from the text. And the further they got in, they were recognizing, oh, actually, I've suppressed this and I've not let myself feel this. And why haven't I? And there was a sort of like breakthrough and sitting in this book club, multiples of us were crying after an hour and a half. They were sort of saying like, thank you for facilitating this talk. I didn't really think of myself as a facilitator, but we were talking quite intimately about our relationship with the natural world, our relationship with going out in it. I mean, I think this was a group of people in Montana, some were ranchers, some were hikers, biologists. I think a number of us had sort of enjoyed these nature texts that were often written by white men, honestly, that you kind of grow up with. Oh, if you're in the mountains, you read this book, you know, your teacher gives it to you. And there's just so much like awe and freedom. And I think I had wanted to write into like, sometimes I, of course I feel that I love being outdoors, but also you feel other things like discomfort or overwhelm or a bit of confusion about, am I in your head? I'm thinking about my phone. <laughs> I wanted to be able to encompass those experiences as well and sort of like break past this kind of reverence. And so I think the most rewarding part for me of having the book out in the world is connecting with other people who are sort of saying like, oh, I relate to this feeling of just total euphoria going for a walk in the forest. And then it really quickly switches into just panic because I like see a man who looks kind of scary and then you're back to the euphoria. You know, this idea that a story about nature or ecology is not also a story about our lived identities or about gender politics, that sort of breakdown and being able to say, actually, these two things are knit together, not only on the page, but like in our heads and helping other people sort of like maybe realize that in ways that they hadn't. I've gotten a lot of notes from men who are saying things like, I didn't realize that I was the wolf in my younger years, or this is helping me reflect on my relationship with my wife. I've always thought she was kind of crazy for being afraid of this or that, but now I realize she's not. And like, those notes mean something to me because I, I don't think I was writing this book to men, but if I'm helping people think about their relationship with power and maybe narratives of predator and prey and those constructions, like that feels really rewarding to me. So I guess I focus on the rewards and then I just focus on the work, the next thing. I want to head more into the nature, but I just want to sort of raise a point. In the book, it's quite weird. There was a moment, I think I messaged you, I was like, oh my gosh, you've been to the UK Wolf Conservation Trust. I've been to the UK Wolf Conservation Trust in Reading and you've spent some time there sort of researching and hanging out with the wolves which nowadays you can't really visit them but at that point you could visit them it was interesting because I remember going there and being like this is in the middle of nowhere I'm not even sure I can even get a taxi to this place when I was there for a wolf keeper today and you went in and you sort of delved further in terms of things that had happened in the area sort of your relationship with that living in the area as well as the wolves themselves and your relationship with the wolves that you were looking after at that point just sort of reading stuff and being like whoa this was something that perhaps I'd pushed aside or I'd forgotten about because I remember being a bit scared because mm-hmm. being in the middle of nowhere when you're coming from mm-hmm. central London and then thinking but this person actually lived there and really mm-hmm. dug deep into that which is beyond the wolves which is why we were both there at the end of the day so thank you for that but I was just like going yeah. oh that's it, it's interesting the power <laughs> of words as it were but one thing I do want to tap into that sort of element of nature and clearly reading it the book and, and the conversations seeing what you've been doing nature is a key part of you but that conflict element you wouldn't think that you would have this conflict with the world around us the environmental world around us that you are a child of nature that it, it it's your thing again there are elements within the book where you're like oh you know we went and ate some stuff and and that led to a very very dangerous situation again not giving spoilers or i've been out there and i wasn't quite sure you talk about um, a particular woman who, who this is very rare but she got eaten that's that's uh, potentially what's happened so that conflict with nature 
how are you using that knowledge now to move on? What is the Erica relationship? The effects of climate change. Actually, I was in the UK teaching last summer when you had that crazy heat wave there. And at that time, there was this crazy heat wave in Portland, Oregon, where I live and where I grew up. And we've had temperatures of around 120. Hundreds of people have died, of course, affecting most you know, workers in the fields that still don't have protections for that sort of thing. And I just think I grew up with a sort of, you know, with family on farms, being outside was sort of peaceful. I would, I cried easier outdoors. Like there was always a sense where I felt most like myself and kind of closest to the surface of myself. And that was like crying out of just maybe joy, but also like I actually let myself feel things that in the rest of life I would kind of tap down. And so that sense of sort of peace and catharsis sort of stereotypically has really bumped up against the lived realities of, say, climate change and of an environment that doesn't respond in ways that are legible and that makes me sad because it reminds me of being human all the time. Like if I go out in the summer and I see a dried creek bed and maybe I don't hear as many bird songs as we're supposed to because these changing things like that is going to make me feel down about the state of things potentially. And so I think it's been interesting to think about, I think, what does it mean to write about nature right now? What does it mean to be out in nature? The very idea that I think I grew up with, that many of us did, that like nature's over there and humans are over here and we're kind of separate, like that is completely broken down, right? And for many people, it's long been broken down. But what does it mean to sort of like write into nature when you see there's a thunderstorm or a flood and you're thinking, wow, this is actually tied to this factory that's like not changing their emissions or these politicians that can't get their stuff together to pass anything, right? And I don't know, I guess I just think that like societal stories and natural stories are the same now. And it's really important to be able to like, look at those things in areas where you see wolves or cougars or bears predating on say humans instead of other or anthropomorphic food sources. That's often because human populations have encroached and maybe other things have gone out of whack. Maybe humans have been hunting these other animals and like understanding that, well, for me, I will say that like looking at the wolf, there's this term in birding, spark bird, which is like the bird that gets you interested in birding the first bird that you kind of see. And for me, I think the wolf was a kind of like spark animal where in just looking at the wolf and the way it moves through these built and natural landscapes, I'm becoming aware about policies of agriculture. I'm thinking about policies of roads. I'm thinking about who's in certain places, who's allowed to hunt, you know, look in places like India, there's wolf attacks are really tied to histories of colonization and who's managing the land and who's allowed to have guns and who is seen as the threat. And it just don't think we can look at animals as this thing over there, right? Of course, that's separate. So I've now totally forgot about your question. I've just been going on, but I do think that that is, for me, being in nature is no longer, it, it's a sense of deep inquiry and confusion and frustration and beauty and sort of interrogation and sure catharsis, but it's all of those things at once. And I think actually that's, you know, that's really important. I sometimes think my job as a writer or as someone who thinks about myself as an environmental writer, it's not just bearing witness. I think often it's like you're bearing witness to environmental change. And I think it's actually drawing connections and it's really important to call out this thing is connected to that thing. And you didn't think it was, but in some way, it, it's there. See, that's the beauty of a have you thought about. We allow rabbit holes because that's where we end up. As you say, it's the connections, what is actually interlinked. You're not just about difficult subjects, hardcore, traumatic things. I mean, something else that's just as important to you is that notion of play. So as an adult, 
what is play? Like, why is it something that you are actually quite passionate about and want to invest in? I wrote this book sort of about fear and about these scary emotions, but I also hope there's like, there is joy in it. And anyone that knows me is like, Erica, you're, you're so interested in play or joy or laughter. I'm very quick to smile. I'm very quick to be amused. Um, there's a great essay by Zadie Smith where she writes about like not being a discerning food critic because she just like loves cheap popsicles. And I'm kind of the same, like the metaphor, like I'm big on, you know, cheap popsicles. I eavesdrop something good. I'm really pleased for a day. I want to go tell someone about it. And I think of it a bit like, you know, as a child, like, Maybe I go walk along the beach and I'm just like picking up the little shells, the little peach of glass, the everything, and I want to go show someone later um, what I found. And I think about that still. I move through the world sort of like looking for these moments of beauty and awe or tenderness, and I want to go share them with whoever will listen to me, essentially. And I think a lot about also sort of my interest in stories is very, in a lived way, I think intergenerational friendships are so important to me, friends with older neighbors or friends, children, and thinking about that as a form of like seeing someone else's perspective with the world or the ways that like a child's going to notice something different, just like someone who's 85 and is maybe like moving slower down the sidewalk is going to have a different gaze of attention. You know, everyone's going to have a different gaze of attention. And for me, you know, the most interesting thing about being human is getting to sort of like put myself in those other positions. And so I would say play comes through, whether it's, you know, okay, we're driving and I'm letting myself be bored. I'm choosing not to listen to a podcast. I love listening to a podcast. I love listening to a book on tape, but sometimes we're just sitting there quietly. And a friend and I recently were starting to say like, what's a verb? Is there a verb that starts with every letter of the alphabet? I don't know how we got on this subject, but suddenly we're just like riffing along and sort of maybe this is my background in poetry and language and just sort of like there's a funness with kind of anagrams or games, but we're just going through verbs, like the juiciest verbs we can think of one after another in the alphabet. And I think that kind of like getting yourself bored, I do that rarely now. It reminds me of being a child and being like, how can I fill this time? My sister and I would sort of spin these stories, these imaginary worlds. And growing up, I just loved reading stories about imaginary places. And if you'd have told me I would have written about nonfiction, I would have been so bored by that idea. And I think now I realize though, that like writing nonfiction, there's just these glimmers of fascination. Like it's so fascinating that wolves can smell on the air, another wolf's, what they've eaten, what their sex was, how they were feeling. Like that's a fascinating thing that makes me going on a hike feel much more astounding. Cause I'm imagining like if a wolf was here right now, like this is what it would be aware of. And so I guess there's a level of play also in that sort of like what I'm looking at intellectually. I feel like it's all kind of giving me prescription eyewear to move through the world. And I'm imagining what would my friend's baby be doing here? What would a wolf be doing here? What would my childhood self be doing here? It sort of keeps it really interesting and distracts me from just looking at my phone and uploading a picture. Do you block off time to be like, no, that's time I'm going to be bored? Because you must have quite a busy schedule. And we're in a world where so much is trying to grab our attention. You know, as you say, it's about posting things, about being performative, about being able to be like, oh, I need to get extra work or I need to do this. How do you find the time to be bored? Mm -hmm. There's a website called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L, and you sort of like track your time as you're going. I think it's sort of for billing, people that are billing other clients, but I've started using it where, okay, I'm responding to emails, I'm gonna set the toggle and I'm gonna do it. And then I see, okay, I've gotten this for an hour, I'm gonna stop. And I even set it the other day for texting or messaging. I've gotten really bad at responding and a friend just called me out. But I think it's been during this publication spring when there's been a lot of people reaching out, which is so wonderful and I'm responding and there's DMs and I got to a point where I wanted to do it during a set hour of the day and not constantly. I didn't want to be constantly available. And of course, for my closest friends and family, I am, but 
sort of setting up those standards. So I'll, I now set these times where I say, okay, I'm going to be reading for two hours and just no notifications, nothing. And I'll toggle that so I can later see. It's kind of nice to look back and you can see the different colored blocks. It has helped me realize like, otherwise there's such a leak, I think for me, where I'm sort of, I'll respond to this, then I get back to the reading, then I respond to this, then I, you know, and that um, sort of oscillating between different modes of communication is really hard for me creatively. So it's sort of like having these blocks of time. And I also think being in areas without service or Wi-Fi, I still, this is maybe one of the things I love most about going into this sort of farther reaches it's harder to find right we're in such a connected world but being on a train where they say oh sorry the wi-fi's broken is such a gift if we let ourselves feel it the wonderful erica berry author of wolfish wolf self and the stories we tell about fear do you have an interdisciplinary life because i would love to hear from you and maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter which is called have you thought about it can be found via www.drutishar.com Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music. <laughs>